just told Eddie that this is the last time he'll be recording sermons over here by the looks of it. So, to make sure we record our own sermons now. Yeah. Good to be with you here this morning and uh, what a joy. I was standing at the back of the church while you were singing that last hymn there and it just sounded so beautiful. I just, was, uh, I just had to listen. Sorry, I wasn't singing. I just had to listen to you all. So it was a, a blessing for me. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. We'll be reading and we'll be talking about joy. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. <clears throat> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, Though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honour and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for this, uh, this precious time when we can come and look into your word and be taught of you. And Father, we pray that your spirit would teach us this morning. I pray that everyone here would be blessed, Lord, through this sermon. And I pray that we would take it away that, uh, that we might live more abundantly for you that our hearts be given more to you. And Father, if there is any area in our lives which we are withholding from you, Father, I pray that today would be the day that we give our whole hearts to you. So we thank you once again for your grace, for your wisdom, and for the salvation which brings us unspeakable joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a society where you're continually being sold something. Every time you turn a television on and read, a, read something or drive down the freeway and there's billboards everywhere and it doesn't matter where you look or what you hear, um, there is something being sold to you. Our politicians are very good at selling things. Our politicians, uh, during election time especially, because they want to be re-elected, will make you promises and they'll promise that they'll give you more money in your pocket. They'll promise that they'll, they'll make your health system better so you don't have to worry about that. They'll promise that they're going to build you better roads and better infrastructure and they're going to give you more jobs and higher paying jobs and they're going to give you more stability and they're going to give you more benefits and the list goes on and on and on. What are they selling you? They're trying to sell you happiness because if you... They, they want you to believe that if they give you all these things... You know something? If you have a perfect health system... If you have perfect police system, if you have plenty of money in your pocket, and if you have all the things that they promise you, guess what you're going to be? Happy. 
They're selling you happiness. And if you open your TV or you see an ad or you see these billboards down the, down the, uh, while you're driving, guess what they're selling you? That if you buy this particular phone, it has all these wonderful features in it. And if you use those wonderful features, you're going to be more happy. And if you buy a certain car, you know, just the, the, they're, they're wonderful at wrapping things up, aren't they? They say, you know, when you get in that car and you get that new car smell. Anyone had a new car smell before? doesn't last that long, but it's a new car smell. It's actually quite poisonous, just to let you know. Okay? So enjoy it while you're killing yourself. Um, whether you buy a car or you buy certain clothes or if you buy certain shoes or if you buy a handbag or if you buy a certain house in a certain suburb and if you go with this person or that person, guess what they're all trying to sell you? Happiness. Because if I have a house that's big enough, you know, my house is too small or, or my car's not new enough or, or my phone's too small and not fast enough or if my computer's not fast enough or if I'm not reading the right books or if, I'm, if I haven't got the nice comfortable chairs in my house. and The list goes on and on. It goes on forever. And everyone's trying to sell you something. And they're all trying to sell you one thing, that if you buy what they have to give you, and vacuum cleaners are good as well, you know, if you have the right vacuum cleaner. You'll be more happy while you're vacuuming. What do you mean that's true? They're all trying to sell you something. They're trying to sell you happiness. And everyone's pursuing happiness in their lives. And they think that the more they gain, or if they have the right things, or if they have the right job, and if they have enough money, if they're driving the right car, and if they've done all these things, if they have enough friends, how do you get more friends? Well, if you go on Facebook, you can find plenty of friends on Facebook, right? So jump onto Facebook because you can make plenty of friends. You can have a thousand friends on Facebook and a thousand likes and people can be seeing what you're doing and you can tell them what breakfast you're having in the morning and what lunch you're having and, and everyone's so friendly on Facebook until you find out there's some very nasty people on Facebook. I'll ask you a question this morning. Let's strip all that away. Do you regard yourself as a genuinely joyful person? Are you genuinely happy? Or, are, or is your life consumed with the things you don't have and the things that you're hoping for sometime in the future you're going to get? And it might simply be, you know, I want this relationship fixed up because if I can fix that relationship, my life's going to be so much better. Or if I'm getting, going to get this job in the future, it's going to be so much better in the future. You know, I'm looking forward to something. You know that we're conditioned... We are conditioned in our society, and in fact every society, that you shouldn't be happy. You should not be joyful. You should always be looking for something else that will bring you joy. So everyone keeps chasing rabbits everywhere. And there are rabbits running everywhere. Ever tried chasing a rabbit? <laughs> I know that, uh, I used to watch that, that Rocky movie. That first, was it the first one? The Rocky movie where they, they threw a chicken and they said, you've got to chase the chicken. It's not a very easy thing to do. But people spend their whole lives chasing rabbits and chickens and everything else. And then when they got the chicken, they don't know what to do with it. They've got to put it down and chase another chicken. But my, my question to you this morning is, do you regard yourself as a joyful person? Because there is a difference between joy, being joyful, and being happy. Happy can come and go in an instant. You can be happy one moment, and the next moment, you can be unhappy. 
My, my question to you this morning, and the thing I'd like you to ask yourself, is do you have an underlying joy that underpins your life? To ride, to ride through all the bumps and all the, all the problems that come in everyday life. I might ask you another question. Should Christians be joyful? Oh, you say that confidently. Christians should be joyful. Okay, should Christians be the most joyful people in the world? Yeah, they should be the most joyful. I'm glad you've answered those two questions in the affirmative. Because we have much to be joyful about, but not just much. We have an underlying joy that should actually should be part of our lives and it should flow through every area of our lives that we aren't caught in this cycle that the world finds itself in. Where is joy found? Well, I can tell you where joy is not found. Okay, Let's start with that. It's not found in unbelief. This fellow called Voltaire, very great philosopher, a very smart person, um, absolutely hated God and hated Christians who believed in God and he was the atheist or an unbeliever of the strongest kind. He would ridicule Christianity often in his writings. Spent a lot of time um, speaking against the belief in God. But yet, this person who was so intelligent and would have been looked up to by people in his own society finished with this. I wish I had never been born. Can't find joy in unbelief. What about pleasure? The Lord Byron lived a life of pleasure. If anyone did, he was the one. He had plenty of pleasures at his disposal and he lived it to the full. And he wrote, The worm, the canker and grief are mine alone. It's a nice way to finish your, uh, your epitaph. It's not found in money. Jay Gould, the American millionaire, had plenty of money. And when dying, he said, I suppose I am the most miserable man on earth. You like that? The most miserable man on earth with millions and millions of dollars. He didn't find happiness and money. What about position and fame? Lord Beaconsfield enjoyed more than the average person of this thing. Position and fame. And yet he wrote, youth is a mistake, manhood a struggle, old age a regret. Swept around by the, the ebbs and flows of normal life that the world experiences, he didn't find joy. And joy is not found in power and military glory because Alexander the Great conquered most of the known world as we know it today and having done so, wept in a tent because there were no more worlds to conquer. He died a very miserable death. Where is real joy found? Well, I'll tell you. The answer, and you probably have already anticipated what I'm going to share with you, is that real joy is found in Christ alone. Real joy is found in Christ alone. You know, there are plenty of things that bring joy to our lives. Now, for those of you parents who have had children, I'm assuming that you know your first child would have been a great time of anticipation and joy. And getting together on special occasions. When I come to church on a Sunday morning, we'll get a lot of joy from that. Now we're planning a church in Sunbury and we're, we're doing a whole lot of things and there's a lot of joy that we get from certain things in our lives. But there's a special type of joy the Bible speaks about which underlies and is foundational 
to a person's life. It's foundational type of love. It's a type that underlies all the other joys that you can get, which may be fleeting as well. And it's a joy that comes from knowing that your creator knows you. He knows you. And you know him. There's a joy that comes from that which the world cannot comprehend. True, consistent joy comes from God. Its presence in the life of a believer makes him vibrant, even in the midst of sufferings and things when they go absolutely wrong. Jesus desired all of his disciples and followers to have this type of joy. Turn to John chapter 15 with me and we're looking at verse 11 just for a moment before we go through this passage today. I want to share something with you which is foundation to this thought. John chapter 15 verse 11. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. You like that? Now think, meditate on that verse just for a moment. These things have I spoken unto you. What things, Lord? Well, all the things that are contained in Scripture. He shared certain truths with his disciples up to John chapter 15, and he said, my desire is that all the things that I'm, I'm, I'm telling you might be the source of your joy. But he says that my joy might remain in you. Whose joy? It's his joy. So Christ has a joy within himself that he wants to give to you, that he wants every believer to possess within themselves, and that that joy is meant to be the foundational joy for every other joy. And then he says that your joy might be full. And God is, does an amazing thing when he saves a person. The Bible says he plants himself in there. He plants the divine in there. He plants his presence in there. And it brings alive our spirit. But it's a bit like God plants a seed and then it begins to grow. Some people in their lives where God plants a seed of this salvation, this new identity that he gives us, they don't allow the seed to grow very much. Because they become distracted very quickly to things in the world. And that they continue to feed the old nature. And so that seed may grow to a small plant, but doesn't get to grow very much. But there are some who realise what God has done for them. They realise who God is, and they give themselves wholeheartedly to God. And realise that the words that he has spoken to us through the Bible are words that are meant to nourish that seed that are meant to help that seed to grow. And the more that seed grows, the more I have victory over the old me. And that's a very joyful thing. If anyone's ever planted a fruit tree and you watch that tree grow, you know when that fruit starts to, to come, you know that first fruit that you, you grab from those plants? It's actually a very joyful thing. It's actually a very happy thing when you see fruit coming from that, that tree. And how frustrating is it when you have fruit trees that never produce any fruit? How frustrating is it? But yet God has planted his seed within our hearts. And how joyful is it to him when he sees us bear fruit in our lives? Because, he, because he's continually watered. It's watered with the word of God and the spirit of God that helps the whole thing to grow. So... 
There's one thing we need to understand this morning before we proceed, is that Jesus wants you to be joyful. Jesus wants every, every one of his disciples to have his joy within their hearts. If you don't believe that, then you can't have joy, and you won't have joy, because he who comes to God must believe that he is. And the things that he said are true. If you don't believe the word of God, then you can't take the next step. So let's, what I want to share with you this morning is this passage that we've read, which is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to verse 9. I'd like us to go through it. I want to give you some very good reasons why you should be joyful. And let's begin with verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have been begotten again. You like that? You know, some people say that, oh, you know, uh, the, the, the Gospel of John is the only place that it speaks about being born again. Not true. Peter here says that we have been begotten again, which means born again. We have been born again because of Jesus, what Jesus has done for us. He rose again from the grave and because he is alive, we can now have the same life. He rose again. Death cannot hold him and therefore it cannot hold us if we are found in him. This is what baptism pictures. You know, in a few, we've made the announcement on the 28th, we're hoping to have some baptisms. You know what baptism is? Baptism is telling the world, this is what's happened to me. The old me is dead and God's planted and he's new nature within me and I've risen again with Jesus it's a wonderful picture it's a public testimony we have been given new life in Jesus so we've been born again according to his wonderful mercy which we never deserved but it says there we've been born again unto a lively hope you like that? A lot. don't miss the word lively there please don't miss it because it's critical to that particular passage. He didn't just uh, uh, make us born again just to a hope, but a lively hope. You know the word lively, what it means? It means with great anticipation, with excitement. There is an excitement that a Christian should have in their lives that they're looking forward to this resurrection. We've been begotten again unto a lively hope. Now what excites you? What gets you excited? Maybe if you're a parent, maybe you'd, be, maybe you'd get, get excited at one of your children getting married. Would that cause you excitement? Maybe if you're a grandparent watching your, your children have children, the first child that comes along, or a parent, your first child, or it could be a number of different things, okay? What gets you excited? What gets you worked up with anticipation? Not nervousness, but anticipation. This is what... The Bible says that we have. There is much more reason to be excited about heaven. Isn't there? There is much more reason to be excited about what we have to look forward to than anything else that might excite us or get us, get us uh, uh, worked up over here. There is much more that we have won when Jesus took away all of our sins and wrote our names in his book in heaven. There is much greater reason to be enthusiastic about the fact that we now have a home with Jesus. That we have all of eternity to look forward to. 
And it's in heaven waiting for us. Look at verse 4. It tells us what that hope is, what that, what that lively hope is. It says, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. What's an inheritance? Can I ask you a question? Who worked for their inheritance last time? I Anyone work for an inheritance? An inheritance is something that you didn't work for. It was given to you because of someone else's work. And it's handed to you. Because of what? Because of who you are. Because of the connection that you have with the person who's giving it. Normally it's done through... Normally inheritances are made to family members because there is that connection there. Or maybe it's because simply a friendship that you have, but an inheritance, something that's, that's gained without working for it because someone else actually earned it for you and we received it because of who he has made us. He made us his children. The Bible says that he's, in, he's adopted us into his family. And because of the work that Jesus Christ has done, we have this amazing inheritance waiting for us in heaven. There is a reason that we should be extremely excited about heaven. More than anything else in our lives. And it's because Jesus is there. I don't really care about the, the streets of gold, to be honest with you. That would be nice to look at. Maybe he's preparing, I know he's preparing a home for me and it'll probably, be looking, it'll probably look unbelievable. So maybe you're excited about that and, and, and that, that will be true when, we, you know, when you step into a new home, you get excited. Imagine stepping into the home that Jesus is preparing. But there's one thing that excites me more than everything else, more than the angels and more than the than the, the home and more than the streets of gold and more than you know, catching up with Abraham and Isaac and catching up with all these Old Testament saints and sitting down with them and, and maybe having a chat about how, how things went and maybe talking to you know, uh, Gabriel, the angel, and, and asking him how it was when he, you know, when he shared that wonderful news with Mary and, and when he went to visit Daniel and all those things. Maybe those things are exciting. But there's one thing that excites me more than all those other things put together, to be honest with you. It's to be with the one who loved me and gave his life for me. He's the one I'm looking forward to. And at the end, if he took all that away, all the rest of it away, if he took away the streets of gold and all the angels and the homes and everything and just said, I'm here, that'd be enough for me. That'd be enough. For all of eternity, that'd be enough. Now, Jesus says, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust are corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. Do you think that, you know, when you, when you read that, you get the impression that we're building up some sort of a fortune over there? Gold bullion or cash? What do you reckon it's going to be? You know, for me it is. Building up my fortune in heaven is going to be the day that I stand before him. And he says, well done. There is nothing greater than bringing him the glory that he deserves. There is no greater reward we can ever have for the rest of eternity 
than for him to hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done. Where does true joy come from? True joy comes, it's not just a feeling, but it's a state of being that we have now. That we're not waiting for something in the future, but we have it now. A state which God has produced in us when he saved us. And that joy comes from knowing that we are saved and having an amazing future to look forward to. This life only lasts for but a moment. The Bible says it's like a vapour that just is here today and gone tomorrow. A puff of smoke. And we get so caught up in this little puff of smoke over here that we want to build all the stuff that's happening over here, but yet we, realize, we don't realise how fast it's fleeting, how fast it's going. And before long, we face an eternity. So we have an amazing inheritance to look forward to. That fades not away. That's reserved in heaven for us. And look at verse 5. The other beautiful part about this whole thing is that we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In what do we rejoice? Well, we have an amazing future to look forward to and a wonderful salvation that's been secured by Jesus Christ. But not only that, not only that we are kept by the power of God. You know what that word kept means? It doesn't mean just something you just keep in your pocket or keep on the side or, or keep under a sh- on a shelf somewhere. That word kept means it's protected. It's guaranteed. There is no chance of decay or loss. We are kept by the power of God. Now, it, it literally means to stand guard over. Stand guard. So, look at this. God sends his son into the world to pay for my sins, to adopt me into his family, to start building a place for me in heaven, right? Reserved for me. I didn't earn any of it. I'm still not deserving of it. Not now. The Bible says that he even stands guard in front of it and makes sure that no one can steal it and no one can take away my salvation from me. In verse, Look at verse 6. Wherein you greatly rejoice. You know, we're able to rejoice because we are kept by the power of God. Once you give your life to the Lord, once you receive him as your Lord and Saviour, there is no one who can take that away from you. What he gives you is thoroughly protected by simply believing. There are no rituals, no laws and works that must be performed to maintain this. Anyone who tells you that you need to maintain your salvation is lying because he he won it. I didn't earn it and I can't do anything to keep it. I can just live a life of gratitude for it. And that's the life that he wants from us. Our joy comes from the guarantee of God's promises. These are guaranteed. You know something? There are plenty of guarantees and promises people make in the world, but they can't keep. Any promise that you make to someone else, there is a good chance you can't keep that promise anyway. But there is one promise that God makes that he will always keep. In fact, God keeps every promise that he has ever made because he can. And he's the only one who can promise something that will never, ever go back on his word. Men have trusted in wealth and riches throughout all of history. 
They've trusted in their power. They've trusted in their wealth. They've trusted in, in all types of other things, in their reasoning. But we found out, if anything, the world teaches us is that these things are here today and gone tomorrow. True joy comes from having a life with a secured future that can never be removed or taken away by any man nor devil. We have a, as a guard of our lives and souls, the one who sees all and knows all. He never sleeps, he never slumbers. And when you have absolute protection and guarantee, you know what that allows you to do? It allows you to be joyful. You don't have to worry about defending it yourself. You don't have to worry about, oh, what happens if someone steals it? You realise that the, the men go chasing money most of their lives and after they've got some, they worry about losing it. They, worrying, they worry about the devaluation of it. They worry about how to spend it and how to invest it wisely. The more money they have, the more headaches they've got. But we have such a wealth that's been promised to us and given to us. And God says, you don't have to worry about it. I've got it. I'll take care of it. It's not going to go anywhere. Your name's written here, and I'm going to guard it until you come home and get it. It's here waiting for you. You know, when, when God called Abraham out of, his, out of the land of Ur and said, Abraham, I want you to take your family and all your stuff, and I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. And Abraham goes, where? Canaan. Where's that? Don't worry, Abraham. Take all your stuff, pack up all your belongings and head out. Leave the life that you've, that you've known all of your life and I want you to head out. I'm going to show you the place where I want you to go. And God says to Abraham, fear not, Abraham. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. So when God says, come, let me lead you to a place. And you go, where? I don't know that place. God says, don't worry. I guarantee it for you. I'm your shield. I'm the one who is going to protect you every step of the way. And guess what? I'm going to be the reward at the end of the line. Guess what he's saying to you now? I'm your shield. I'll protect whatever I've promised you. There is no one who can steal it from you or take it away. And Jesus says, if you're in his hand and you're in the Father's hand, there is no one who can take you out. Amen. So the Lord says, fear not. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Turn to Psalm chapter 91 with me, just to, to emphasise this point just a little bit more. Psalm chapter 91, Psalm 91, verse 2 to 4. If you have any instability in your life, if you have anything that you're uncertain about in your future, if you're a believer this morning and Christ is your saviour, then you can say these words with all, all confidence. Look at what it says. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. My God in him will I trust. Surely he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with his feathers and under his wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Can you say that this morning? 
Do you have that confidence? And you, you say, God's my refuge and God's my fortress. He's the one who shields me. He's the one under whose wings I'm safe. He's the one in whom I'll trust with my soul and every day of my life. Can you honestly ask that of yourself this morning and say, yes, that's true of me. If it's not true of you this morning, then I invite you to actually do it. To trust him. Because there is no one who's more trustworthy than him. And you have no reason to fear if you're in Jesus. And let's look at, let's look at verse 6. True joy persists in the presence of even distress that comes our way. First Peter 1 Peter 1.6 says, Wearing ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. We rejoice even though we can, we can go through some seriously sorrowful times. Heaviness. In manifold, which means diverse in many ways. You may get, you may get tempted or, or persecuted or whatever in a number of different ways. Yes, you can rejoice and still be under a heavy load of persecutions and temptations. But whatever trial that you may be enduring, whatever season of your life you are going through, remember one thing, that they are only for a season. It says there, no, now for a season. You may be going through this for a season, but it'll all end. It doesn't endure forever. The one thing that will endure forever is the joy that God promises you and his presence. Whatever trial you may be going through today, it will end. It'll finish. And that it's only a season of your life. And look at verse 7. It says, The trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honour and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. If you go back to the previous verse again, it says, wherein you greatly rejoice, so now for a season, if need be. You like that? If need be. Hang on a sec. Hang on a sec. Who says if it needs to be? Who says if I have to go through these trials and tribulations, if need be? It's him who says that it needs to be. So if you're going through trials and tribulations and distress and problems, let me tell you something. And you are a genuine believer. The Bible says that he's the one who's determined that it needed to be this way. The Bible says all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. So if you genuinely love him this morning, every trial and tribulation that you are going through at this present time is there because he says it needs to be. And it's not for anything else. It's not, not to put you through pain that you un don't need. But that through that pain, the Bible says in the very next verse that the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honour and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So God's refining us. He refines us through the sufferings and the trials that, we, that come across our lives. Why does he allow those things to happen to his, his children? Because he wants your faith in Jesus to grow stronger. And just as gold is refined by fire, you can't refine it in a refrigerator, I'm sorry. You can't take tainted gold or gold mixed up with other rubbish and put it in a freezer 
and it'll come out pure. It doesn't work like that. Gold has to be heated with a great heat to separate the genuine from the rubbish that needs to be removed. And that's what God's doing with our lives. You see, God's planted an amount of faith in every one of us. And God wants that faith to grow. And that faith needs to be worked. It needs to be put through its paces in order to actually grow stronger. It's a bit like building a muscle. I've often used this, uh, this example. Someone who actually goes to the gym and works to build up muscle has to go through a certain amount of pain. I've done it, and I will never do it again. <laughs> you have to go... With... <laughs> the Bible says there is, there is some benefit, all right, in... Uh, in uh... Physical, uh, <laughs> physical work. The Bible says that the faith is a bit like a muscle. All right, you've got, you've got your muscle. God's given you a muscle to work. But unless you strain that muscle, see, guys who build up their muscles, they understand one thing, that if I don't strain that muscle and rip it, it has to be torn. Okay? And you might think, oh, that's not right. No, it actually is. Because muscles are made of, of fibres. And when you strain your muscle really hard, what happens is the, the, those little fibres, they actually split some of them. Not all of them, some of them split. And then what happens is they, instead of where there was one fibre, then they become two. So the more they do that, the thicker the muscle actually gets. But you have to go through a certain amount of pain to get, to get through that. But faith is very similar. Unless you keep on working it, it doesn't grow. So God wants us to go through these things and learn from them. But sometimes when we go through trials and sufferings and all those things, we say, no, nah, I don't want any of that. I don't, want to, I don't want to go down that path. I'm going the other way. So we actually miss the point. We miss the point of actually going through that suffering. And the problem is that we don't often ask ourselves why we're in that in the first place. Are you going through difficult times in your life? then my advice to you would be stop. Just stop. Because most of our lives, we just go one step after another and we're so busy and running in a particular direction that we don't even see what's going on in our lives. We've run past a certain direction, we've missed all the, everything that's going on, we've missed the, the people that we're either hurting, we've missed lessons that we've needed to learn because we're so in a rush to get to somewhere else. So my first advice to you would be, if you're going through sufferings and you don't know what's going on in your life, just stop. Just stop and take a look around. Try to remove yourself from your own situation. You know, sometimes it's very difficult to see where you're at because we're so emotionally involved and running in this whole thing that you don't see what's going on, what's actually going on, and that God's trying to teach us a lesson in this thing. And there's a lesson to be learned. So try and remove yourself. Was it me that actually got myself in this, this, in, this, in this point? If you ask yourself honestly, most of the time you will find that the headache that you're in today is because of a decision that you made a little while ago. So what's a lesson to be learned? Don't make that same decision again. The problem with most people is that they've made a wrong decision, they find themselves in a mess, they're not seeing what's actually happened, how they actually got there, and they keep making the same decision over and over and over and over again. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. 
because I've done the same thing. But I see it so often with people. They make the same decision over and over again. They don't realise how they got there in the first place. So stop. Ask yourself, how did I get here? Is it me? Stop looking at everyone else around you and look at yourself first. Am I following what the scriptures are teaching me? Or have I abandoned them to actually go my own way? Because one guarantee, one thing I'll guarantee you, is that if you've taken the scriptures and there are things in there which you say, uh-uh-uh, that one's just a little bit of a white, bit more of a liquid paper on that one over there. And then you say, I'm going to go my own way with this one, God. I'm going to go my way. I'm not going to do what you want me to do because it's a bit too hard. You know when you have to forgive someone who's really, really been nasty to you? I'm not, going to, I'm not going to go there just yet. I'm going to hold this hurt a bit longer, God, because I need to mess around with it a bit more. You know, it's actually not feeling too bad when I get to hate that person a bit more. So let me go this way. And pretty soon you find out that days and weeks and months have gone by and you still hold and harbour bitterness in your heart that you haven't given up. And then you say, how did I get here? My life is so miserable. But you haven't seen that you made a decision a long time ago. You forgot about the decision. And now it's even harder to get yourself out because you've been spiralling down without even realising it. Am I following what the scriptures are teaching me? Use your Bible like a mirror. That's what it's there for. It's there to, to look at and honestly say to yourself, oh, that's what it says. Am I actually doing it? And if there's something outside of your control with the with the whatever you're going through, then ask yourself a question. Am I if I'm walking right, if I'm making the right decisions, if I haven't got myself in this particular position because of my bad judgments and errors, then God, what do you want me to learn? What do you want me to learn through this suffering? Is there someone else who needs me? Is there some lesson I need to learn which I can then encourage someone else with? Because oftentimes, the pain we go through, I found this, that when you're in the middle of it, you say, God, what do I have to go through all this for? And then you find out a few months later, someone else comes in your path. And they're going through a very similar thing, but they don't know how to get themselves out. So you're able to share what you learnt with them. If we would stop thinking about ourselves sometimes, we might pick up that God wants us to serve one another in love. And that genuine love of each other means that, that we're looking out for each other. That's what genuine love is all about, and that's what he's teaching us. But if we're so wrapped up in our own lives, you're never going to look at anyone else. And the most miserable people on the planet are those who so wrapped up in themselves, their own lives and their own issues or whatever, that they forget about everyone else around them anyway. And they never get out of that trap. The happiest people in the world are often the poorest people in the world who are spending their time helping other people. That's why Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. Because our society is so built on receiving, people only come to church because they're looking to get something for themselves. And when they don't get what they want, if the preacher's not exciting enough or, or if the fellowship isn't happy enough or this ministry isn't there or that ministry isn't there, guess what they do? They go to other churches looking for stuff 
that does make them happy. And they've missed the whole point. That coming to church is a place, is, 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 you're there to worship God, first of all. You're doing it to serve him. And second of all, you're looking to learn to grow that you might minister and love others. Think about where you're at. Stop. And examine your heart. Compare it to the word of God and look for the lesson that God has for you. The beautiful thing about growing stronger in our faith is that you know who gets the glory out of all of it? God does. When you learn the lesson that God wanted you to learn and you become stronger in your faith and then you're able to share that faith with others and encourage them, you know who receives the glory? God does because he was the teacher and we were the willing student. We weren't the brats that sit at the back and cause all types of problems for everyone else. We were the student that said, or I'm here to listen to what you've got to tell me. And God gets the glory from that. So James tells us, my brethren, can it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations? Can it joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience? Worldly joy can't stand intensified or prolonged sufferings. But a believer's joy that comes from above grows and intensifies it grows stronger when sufferings come your way. This is because God gives you more grace when you need it. If anyone ever asks you, oh, would you be willing to take a bullet for Jesus? You don't have to answer that question even, to be honest with you. Because if someone says, I'm going to take a bullet for Jesus, it's a bit like Peter saying, I won't deny you, Lord. You know, something, God gives you the grace when you need it. Not when you don't need it. If, if anyone hold, is willing to hold a gun to my head and say, if you, if you deny um, Jesus, I'll spare your life. If you don't deny him, I'm going to pull, put a bullet through your head. God hasn't given me the grace for that just yet. But I have every confidence, every confidence in him that when and if that day comes, that he gives me the grace to say, I won't deny him. It's a bit like the manna. That God gives from heaven. Okay? All right. We suffer only a little bit in this country. Our persecution, sometimes we, we overplay our own persecution in this country. Honestly, we don't get persecuted. If you're, if you're continually repeating that we are being persecuted in Australia, then you haven't seen persecution. You don't understand it. Because there are people who are living in countries who can't name his name without having themselves thrown into prison or killed or their family killed as well. Don't speak about persecution. When we have such freedom here, don't speak about persecution when you're not living fully for him either. And we have such freedoms. The day will come soon enough for the persecutions. But for the moment, my question to you is, are you actually utilising the time and the freedom that he has given you? Because if you're complaining about persecution now, what happens when, when things turn bad? What are you going to say then? You know, people are tortured and killed for their beliefs for turning to Christ as their saviour. 
The history books and the Bible are filled with stories of men and women who have endured tremendous persecution, but faced them with joy. Now, thousands of Christians have been lit up as lamps, lit, alive, as lamps, fed to animals and made sport of. I don't see that happening at the MCG, I'm sorry. Christians aren't being slaughtered for sport. Peter himself was crucified before believing in Jesus and no doubt he still had the joy that Jesus gave him in his heart. Many of us have never experienced such persecution. But if it does, I'm sure that God will give you the grace to endure it. But let's make the most of what we have now. Look at verse 8 and 9. Whom having not seen... Ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Why does a Christian desire to see Jesus glorified at his coming? Because we've been able to live a life of faith and produce fruit. Why do we want Jesus to be more glorified? It's because we love him. And we only love him because he first loved us. So let's not give ourselves too much uh, credit here because he loved us with a love that we can't even describe. We will spend the rest of eternity trying to understand. So any love that we reflect back to him is only minuscule compared to what he showed us. And loving Jesus is a clear sign that you have understood who he is and what he's done for you. If you can't love him this morning... I might have to apologise in advance because you might not be saved. Loving him is a natural part of knowing him. This is the ultimate aim for the Christian, to love him more, to learn to love him more. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3. Yea, doubtless, and I can all things but loss, for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I might win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. Knowing Jesus is what this is all about. If you don't know Jesus, you don't have anything. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and our Saviour Jesus Christ, to him be glory both now and forever. Amen. It's about knowing him. Truly to know Jesus is to love him. Now people throw around that phrase, to know him is to love him, but genuinely to know Jesus is to love him. And if you don't love him, you don't know him. If you know him, then you know what I mean. And if you don't, I invite you to come to know him. Because when you know him, you'll have a joy that the Bible says is unspeakable. Unspeakable, because it can't be understood by this world. 
It's something that we've experienced and, and, and we have in our, in our hearts that the world cannot, we can't even describe. If you don't know this joy of knowing him today, then you can have this joy by simply putting your faith in him today. In one moment, he could save your soul, cleanse you of all your sins, give you a new start and a bright future. Just give, me a, give you a word of warning. Your joy can be robbed by sin. Sin will rob you of your joy. And the devil will try to rob you as much as, as much as he possibly can. He can't take away your salvation. He can't take away the fundamentals. But he can rob you of your joy by keeping you focused on the things that don't bring joy and by causing you to sin. Because when you sin, you lose your joy. In fact, when David sinned with Bathsheba, and he, and he writes in, in Psalm 51. Take a time to read that. You know, Psalm 51 is an amazing, repentant psalm. He says in, as part of that, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. I need that back, he's saying. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. He knew that he'd, been, he'd done the wrong thing and he had lost that joy that he had knowing God. Because you know when you sin, what's the... What is the one thing you do when you sin? Is you run away from God. And if you run away from God and you're, and you're like we used to do at high school, we used to um, go behind the sheds to do what? To smoke. That's what a Christian does when they sin, naturally. The natural inclination is the flesh tells you, you better run. You better do it somewhere else. Hide. It's what Adam and Eve did. It's what everyone else has done in the past. So that the devil will tempt you every time, not just to sin, but to run. And when you've run, you lose that relationship that you have with him. He never runs. He's always there. But it's us who run. David realized that he had lost the joy and he wanted it back. So genuine salvation can never be lost. Neither can it be stolen by the devil, but the joy of your salvation can be lost. See, if you're miserable, and some of the most miserable people I've seen are Christians, I'm not joking. Some of the most miserable people are Christians because they know what they should be doing, but they don't. They are so wrapped up in themselves and the devil's got them so confused and running in different directions and chasing all these rabbits that they miss the actual reason that they, they were actually saved in the first place. And they become miserable. And they get used to the miserableness. And they pass their miserableness onto other people as well. If that's you, don't be miserable. Forsake the sin. Focus on Christ. Understand what you have today and don't take it for granted. Let me share with you one last thought. That if you are a genuinely joyful person, you can actually be a source of joy to others. 
You know, that the Apostle John wrote down, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. You know, you can bring your pastor an amazing amount of joy. When he sees, when your pastor sees you grow in the faith, when he sees you obedient to the Lord, when he sees you bearing fruit in your life, there is no greater joy than that. I shared this uh, with uh, the Lebanese church, with the way the other day. You know, when a pastor chooses to put that or take on that responsibility of pastoring the church, he makes an agreement with God. You know what that agreement is? Is that when you stand before God, you don't just give an account of yourself, but you have to give an account of everyone who was under you. Get that. I have to give an account, not just for me, but for all of you. And God's going to say, how did you deal with that person? And what did you teach to this person? And did you pray enough for that person? You understand the responsibility that comes with being a pastor. And every pastor has that burden in their lives. But there's a joy that comes from seeing people grow. Because you know that one day when I stand before God and I say, God, look at so-and-so. Look at how he started off coming to our church like this and look where he is now. And Lord, I had a little part to play in that along the way. Do you know there's no greater joy than to say those sorts of things to the Lord? Can you imagine sharing that with him? Imagine the Lord when, when you stand before him and he says, oh, you've done a good job there. That's the thing that we need to be looking forward to. That's the thing that will bring us joy. Not, not the rubbish that we see around us. The world will not bring you joy. Only the Lord can bring joy. So let me just recap and close. We have an amazing hope to look forward to. It should get us excited. We should be more excitable than everyone else in the world. We have a hope that can never decay or get lost. We have God who guards us like a fortress to make sure that our future is secure. Our, our joy should endure every trial and tribulation. And even our trials are there because God says they're necessary for us to grow in our faith and we will produce fruit. And finally, my question to you is, do you love Jesus and look forward to the end of your faith, which is the salvation of your soul? God bless you. Amen.